0: May all my days bring glory to your name. That is our prayer. That's our prayer as a church. I was thinking about these last few weeks together. We were able to have two dear brothers be baptized last Sunday. We heard their testimony. We heard their love for the Lord, the transformation of the gospel in their lives, we saw the picture of the gospel lived out, dying with Christ, buried with Christ, rising to newness of life, being cleansed of your sins. I was thinking about the sermon that we went through last Sunday, the text that God had us in, in Mark chapter 3, exactly when he wanted it to be looking at what a disciple is and what a disciple isn't. And then looking ahead to our 10-year anniversary, really the goal of being a church is to make disciples. And so it's really been a good microcosm as a church of remembering what we're all about. It's about making disciples. It's about going into the world and proclaiming that Jesus is king. Come follow him. He's calling to you, come follow him. That's where we are in the gospel of Mark. If you have your copy of God's word, turn with me to Mark chapter three. Mark chapter three, you remember we are seeing Mark kind of pull the camera back. He was staring at five specific controversies between Jesus and the religious leaders, very narrow, specific focus. And now he's pulling the camera back and just looking at two groups of people And their responses and reactions to Jesus. The crowds and the called. And as the cameras pulled back, we asked the question, what is a disciple? If the purpose of the church is to make disciples, what is a disciple? And last Lord's Day, we saw five different aspects of what a disciple is not and what a disciple is. We said the disciple clearly in the scriptures is more than just a fan. The disciple is more than just agreeing with and believing what is true. A disciple is made a disciple by the call of Jesus. A disciple's purpose is simple. And a disciple is anyone joyfully willing to trust and obey Jesus, no matter the cost. We did a broad overview of verses 7 through 19. And this morning, I want to look specifically at verses 13 through 19, do a deeper dive into this list that Mark gives us, Of the disciples. All the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have a list of the disciples. But Mark's list is more personal, more intimate, providing nicknames, providing, it seems, more informal facts about these 12 individuals. And I believe part of it is because Peter is the one sharing this information with Mark as he's writing it down. But I think that there's something else that Mark wants to remind us of by giving us this list the way he gives it to us. And in looking at this list, we're gonna see five more aspects of discipleship, five aspects that we need to recognize if we are to follow Jesus the way that he demands. Let's read together. Mark chapter three, verses 13 through 19. Jesus went up on the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, so that they would be with him. He could send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Sometimes when we get to lists like these, whether it's chronological lists of so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, a genealogical record, or lists like this, sometimes we We want to move quickly through it. But as we pray and ask God's blessing on our time, I want to remind our hearts that these words are inspired, inerrant, infallible, holy scripture. These are the words, the very words of our holy and awesome God. So let's ask that he would write their truths on our hearts in such a way that we would be changed and transformed by our time in his word together. Father, we do come before you and we ask that you would be gracious to us yet again. You are faithful every single Lord's Day to allow us not only the privilege of opening up your word, but of showing us Christ, of opening our eyes to see you, of growing greater affections for Christ. We want that so desperately. We need that if we are to grow as disciples of our Savior of our master, of our Lord. And so, Father, we come before you again asking that you would be gracious to us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, wonderful things even from a list of names you will teach us this morning, and we will see ourselves. We will be encouraged, we'll be comforted, we'll be warned, we'll be challenged, we'll be convicted, and we will be changed as long as you do that work in our hearts of giving us that gracious gift of illumination. So Father, be gracious to us. Holy Spirit, show us Jesus. And Jesus, be our greatest delight right now in these moments and forevermore. We pray in your name, amen. Five different aspects in these verses, verses 13 through 19, about what it means to be a disciple. Of Jesus. If you are going to follow him the way that he demands, the way that he deserves, number one, you must recognize the authority of Jesus in discipleship. Number one, you must recognize the authority of King Jesus in discipleship. This is verse 13. Remember, Mark is writing the Gospel of Mark to prove that Jesus is the one true king. And in order to do that, he's been showing us proof after proof after proof of his authority. We've seen his authority over the physical realm. He can destroy sickness. He can get rid of sickness instantly. He can heal people on the spot. He has authority over the spiritual realm. He forgives sin. He defeated Satan's temptations. He casts out demons. Even last week, we saw his command over the demons when the demons say, we know who you are. And he says, don't speak of me. In the last few times that we've been together, we've seen Jesus' authority over religion, over the Sabbath day. I am Lord of the Sabbath, he says. He's calling the shots. He's changing the game. He has authority over religion itself. And he is introducing something entirely foreign and new. And here in verse 13, he went up, some of your translations might say, he got away on the mountain And we are told in other gospel records that he prayed. He went away by himself and he prayed. Now, I don't think the authorial intent of this section is to dive us into the topic of prayer. But I do think it's important to note those two disciplines that Jesus lived out a lot in his earthly ministry are disciplines we need to live out as well. Getting away and praying. Two very important steps for us to live out as followers of the Lord, following in his footsteps to get away, be by ourselves, and seek God's will. Praying is not making God do what I want. Praying is aligning myself with what God wants. And so Jesus is going away saying, Father, what is your will for who I am supposed to choose, who I am supposed to call Tell me who I'm supposed to, to call and to pour into who is supposed to follow me. And that's why it says, verse 13, he summons those that he himself wanted. He summons them because he wants them. He prays for them. He's directed to choose them. And he wants them. We said last Lord's Day, we have given God countless reasons not to want us. And none of those reasons has ever been strong enough to change God's love for us. He wants them. Jesus calls them. He chose them. John chapter six, verses 70 through 71. John 15, verse 16, "You are the ones that I have chosen." He picked them, which again, last Lord's Day we said, that's not usually the way it worked back then. Usually the student would say to the rabbi, I want to follow you, I choose you. But Jesus says as the rabbi to the student, I choose you, you follow me. Why? Because he has authority over these individuals. He summons them and he appoints them. Two very supercharged words to show us the authority that Jesus has. Even in this list, Jesus has the authority over these individuals to rename them. You are Simon, but I call you Peter. He renames them. Come follow me. You're Joe. I call you Bill. That, that's, that means he has authority over your life. If he's able to say, follow me, do what I tell you to do, and I'm going to rename you entirely. So if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to recognize he has all authority. He is king over us. We need to recognize the authority of Jesus in discipleship. Number two... If we're going to live as followers of the Lord the way that he would desire us to live, we need to recognize the community of discipleship. Recognize the community of discipleship. This is verses 14 through 15. He appointed 12 so that they would be with him. He could send them out to preach, to have authority, to cast out the demons. And we talked about this last Lord's Day. Those are the three elements of discipleship. Very simple Don't overcomplicate what it means to follow Jesus. We are to be with Jesus, speak about Jesus, and be transformed by Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They are called by Jesus to be with Jesus. But by being all together with Jesus, they're all together with each other. They're a group. They're the twelve. They're called by Jesus to be with him together. They're Jewish men But other than that, there's really a diversity in this group. These are all different individuals. And the only thing in common that they have is Jesus called them. And they're in a group together, bound together by the call of Jesus. There's probably a lot of fighting in this group of 12 people. You have Simon, the zealot, who hates the Romans, so much so that he's a part of this group called the zealots that would have killed Roman soldiers. He hates the Romans. Who knows if he ever murdered a Roman? He hates them. And then you have Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, who works for the Romans, willingly, because of his greedy heart. And Jesus says, I want you both on my team. Imagine the fighting there. Imagine the, the fighting between the brothers. You have Peter and Andrew, James and John, two sets of brothers. You're just inherently going to have fighting if you've got brothers on a team. And so, too, we as disciples of Jesus, we've been called by Jesus. Literally, the church means, in Greek, ekklesia, the called out ones. We've been called out of the world, called into the fellowship of believers, into the family of God, members of one body. We're called out, and we're called together. Christianity is not an island. You cannot follow Jesus by yourself in isolation. We're called out to be together, members of one another. And so Jesus begins this pattern by calling 12 to himself, calling them and saying, you will be together. He selects 12 of them. By selecting 12 in verse 16, this is an indictment against the Jewish culture, the Jewish mindset, the 12 tribes of Israel, this number when... Uh, Jewish people would have heard Jesus is picking 12 people to follow him. They would have known that is an incredibly profound number. The religious leaders had already disqualified themselves from ministry, and Jesus is replacing their leadership with 12 new leaders. These are the new spiritual leaders in Israel. And the selection of the 12 in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is immediately after a night of prayer, And immediately before the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is a a new community, new system of rules, new legislation. So Jesus prays, selects the 12, and then says, we've got a new group, we've got a new kingdom, we've got a new community, and this is how we live together in this new community. If we're gonna follow Jesus the way that he demands and deserves, we need to first recognize his authority. He is king, we are following him. We don't get to choose what we want to do Our wills are dead, and his will lives in us. Secondly, we need to recognize the community of discipleship, that we need each other. We need each other. We need each other to encourage, to bless, to convict, to challenge, to show each other the grace of Jesus. Number three, If we're going to follow Jesus the way that he demands and deserves, we need to recognize, the way I'm going to put it is, the obscurity of discipleship. We need to recognize the obscurity of discipleship. Following Jesus does not mean you become famous. Following Jesus does not depend on how um, well-known you are or your notoriety. Look at this list. This list, this is why I wanted to do a, a mini deep dive into this list. These people on this list... Some of them we know a lot about. Some of them we don't know anything about other than their names. In each of the synoptics, each list of the 12 disciples has three groupings, four, four, and four. Group one always has the same four. Group two always has the same four. Group three always has the same four. They're not always in the same order, but they always have the same four in those groupings. And each group has its own leader. Peter is always listed first in that first group. Philip is always listed first in the second group. And James, the son of Alphaeus, is always listed first in the third group. Peter's name is always first on every list. Judas's name is always last on every list. And Mark, though he follows that similar pattern, he's going to give us some nicknames, he's going to give us some personal, warm, intimate settings to these individuals. So let's go through each of these. I wonder how much you know of these 12 disciples. Let's just go quickly through them. Some we know a lot about, some we know next to nothing about. Peter, let's start with him. This is verse 13, verse uh, 16 rather. He appoints the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Matthew chapter 10, verse 2 tells us that Peter was the leader of the disciples Matthew says, quote, the names of the apostles are these, first Peter, meaning not first in the order, but first over them. He's the leader of the disciples. His name is actually mentioned more times in the Gospels than any other name other than Jesus. His actual name is Simon. That's why we're given that name at the beginning in verse 16. Simon, to whom Jesus gave the name Peter. Peter is some sort of a nickname, and it means rock. Peter is the Greek equivalent of the Aramaic word Cephas. So Peter, Petros, and Cephas in Aramaic. It's not a proper name. It's closer to Boanerges, the sons of thunder. And it's most likely referring to a quality that Jesus is calling out in him. Jesus would call him Simon over the course of his earthly ministry when he was acting like his old self. And he would call him Peter when he was encouraging him or desiring for him to grow into the leadership role that he wanted him to have. This is actually what uh, Tommy Lasorda did. I don't know if you know the Dodgers, manager of the Dodgers. He did with one young pitcher who came into the league with a very strong and accurate arm, but a very weak and timid personality. Tommy nicknamed him the Bulldog. This little weak personality of a man, but with a strong arm. And he said, I'm going to call you the bulldog. Why? Because he wanted to draw out this man's personality to make him tenacious as he pitched. And Oral Hershiser absolutely grew into that nickname, becoming one of the game's best pitchers of all time. That's what happens here with Jesus calling Peter. You're Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you out. You have qualities, that I can use. He's inquisitive. He takes the initiative. He's involved in almost everything. And of course, with those pros come huge cons. There's obviously failings. We know many of them in the Gospels. Peter's often called the foot-in-mouth disciple because he's just always putting his foot in his mouth. He's always saying things, bad things at the wrong time, in the wrong place. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Uh, He says, it's good that we're here. We should build tents and stay here. And God the Father says to him, uh, this is my son, listen to him. Don't, Don't speak if you don't know what to say, listen to him. But he is known for repentance and restoration, even his worst of failings, by denying Jesus three times, he is restored. And so we know him for his godly character, and even as we're reading 1 Peter, you will see a transformation in this man. I wonder what kind of character will you be known for? It's not if people remember you when you die, it's how they will remember you. And as one commentator said, the only thing that walks back from the tomb with the mourners and refuses to be buried is the character of a man. What a man is survives him. It can never be buried I wonder how you and I will be remembered. Peter starts the list, and then, verse 17, we move to James and John. It's always these three, Peter, James, and John. They're the inner circle. They're the three closest to Jesus. It's very interesting. If I were writing this list, I would have said Peter and Andrew, James and John, two pairs of brothers. But Andrew's on the outside of this inner circle of three, and so it's Peter, James, and John. They're called Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Mark translates that Aramaic word so that we can understand it. Sons of thunder. They were given this name by Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 54. When uh, James and John, they're going into a Samaritan area. The Samaritans are rejecting Jesus. And James and John say, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? If I'm Jesus at that point, I go, Oh man, I think I picked two wrong guys to be on my team. Let's kill all these people. No, 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 guys, hang on. We've come to love them, call them to repentance. Don't kill them. They are the sons of Zebedee. We don't know who Zebedee is. He must have been some man of importance that he's named here. We know that he's a man of wealth. We saw earlier in the Gospel of Mark that he had hired servants that were attending his boats but we don't really know anything else about their father. Let's start with James. James, the son of Zebedee. James, he's the least known of the inner three. Of Peter, James, and John, James is the least known. In fact, the only time that he's ever mentioned by himself is Acts chapter 12 when he's being killed, when he's being martyred. Other than that, he's always mentioned with his brother John. He's probably the older between James and John because he's always mentioned first. He seems to be a very passionate man, Much zeal, sometimes misplaced, two accounts in scripture would illustrate that. Once when he wants to call down fire from heaven and kill the Samaritans. And the second would be when James and John ask their mom to go talk to Jesus on their behalf so that Jesus will give them second in command in the kingdom. But once his zeal gets mixed with the knowledge and the wisdom of following Jesus, it becomes an amazing gift. James shares the gospel stands for truth up until the day that he dies. He is the first of the disciples to be martyred. His brother John, uh, you and I know him very well, wrote the gospel, wrote first, second, and third. John wrote Revelation. He is nicknamed the disciple of love, but clearly he didn't start out that way because he started as the disciple of thunder wanting to kill the Samaritans. But John is such a wonderful picture of what happens when someone stays in the presence of God and is transformed by the gospel. He starts out a son of thunder and he ends a disciple of love. And in early church church, Father, an early church historian, Jerome, says that at the end of his life, John was so frail that he couldn't even walk into church and had to be carried into church. But as he was carried into his church, on his lips was always the phrase, little children love one another. Little children love one another. Even as he's being carried into church, little children love one another. Next we have Andrew. Andrew in verse 18 Andrew is Peter's brother, and he kind of seems to be the opposite of Peter. He's not brash. He doesn't say the wrong things. In fact, whenever we see him talking in Scripture, which is extremely rare, he's always saying the right things. His name means manly. He has simple faith. He has a simple strength. He's the one who points out the little boy with the five fish and two loaves of bread and says, hey, maybe this can work. I don't know how we're going to feed everybody, but Jesus, maybe you can do something with this. Andrew, of all the disciples, he's the first to meet Jesus. Andrew is my favorite of all the disciples. He's the first to meet Jesus. And then he goes instantly to his brother and says, we found the Messiah. We found him. And then he's so happy to just be in the shadows of Peter. Peter, go. Lead. That's you. I'll be me. You be you. We found the Messiah. He introduces people to Jesus And he's happy to decrease. He must have been really good friends with John the Baptist. Let Jesus increase. Let me decrease. I just want Jesus to be made famous. Tradition tells us that he shared the gospel all the way as far as the north in Scythia, which is Russia, modern-day Russia. You have two opposites, Peter and Andrew, but God uses both of them. Next in line is Philip. There's a Philip in the book of Acts. uh, Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to him. That's a different Philip. Um, the, the deacon who goes to the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't know much about this, Philip. John only includes tiny vignettes. We don't even have anything here in Mark about him, but John includes these little vignettes about him. And the little vignettes kind of show us that he's a bit skeptical. He's a bit skeptical. He wants to see his call of following the Messiah is to see if this is all real. I want to check this out and see if it's actually real. When asked, where are we going to get food for all of these people? Jesus asks him that. He goes, I don't think we can make this happen. (laughs) Where, Where are we going to get food for everybody? Philip says, I don't think we can. It's not possible. This is a bad plan. And that's when Andrew steps in and goes, well, there's a kid that has a little bit of food. We could do something with that. We have a glimpse of Philip in the end of John. When Philip says in the upper room, Lord, show us the father and it's enough. We're struggling to follow you. We're struggling to understand. We're struggling to believe. Just show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen him. You know what it is to follow the Father if you follow me. So Philip's a bit skeptical. And yet he's called by Jesus. Come follow me. If you're skeptical here this morning, you can still follow Jesus. Next in the list is Bartholomew. Bartholomew is a nickname. The man's actual name is Nathaniel. Bartholomew is son of... Ptolemy, son of Ptolemy, he came from Cana, he he was brought to Jesus by Philip, he and Philip seemed to always be side by side together, and Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, can be summed up for his love for the scriptures, John chapter 1, verse 45, we have found the one that the scriptures speak of, notice he doesn't say, we found this really cool guy who does miracles, he says, no, 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 the scriptures prophesied, he's the fulfillment of the scriptures, but we see Nathaniel has a little bit of prejudice in him. He's the one who says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? We found this guy who's prophesied, but is this really the place that we thought he was going to come from? A little prejudice against Nazareth. Jesus declares about him This is a man in whom there is no deceit. He's genuine. He was longing for the Messiah, who's eager to receive the Messiah, and Jesus calls him. Next in line is Matthew. Matthew, we know him, Levi. We saw his conversion. He's the tax collector. He's disdained. He's hated, especially by fellow Jews and by zealots like Simon the Zealot. He's a deceptive liar. But notice, Mark does not put his name down the way that we saw him first introduced. He was Levi. Jesus called Levi, but now he says Matthew. He shows us the transformed individual, the one that God wanted, and that God was going to use. Next, we have Thomas. Thomas is known in the Gospels as Thomas Didymus. Didymus just means twin. We don't know if that's because he had a twin, if he was a twin uh, brother. Or tradition actually tells us that he was called twin because he looked like Jesus. He looked like Jesus' twin. We know him not as Didymus. We know him better as Doubting Thomas. He was a pessimist. His two main appearances in the scripture are in the upper room after Jesus rose from the dead. And you know how that went. Unless I see his side, unless I see his hands, unless I can touch him, I will not believe. We also see a picture of him in John 11 when Jesus says, we're going to go to Bethany to be with Lazarus. And he says, fine, let's go to him. Let's go with him so we can die with him. Very pessimistic. Very skeptical. Very skeptical. And Jesus says to him, I'm going to hand the keys of the kingdom to you. Pessimistic, skeptical, you get the keys of the kingdom. Next, we have James, the son of Alphaeus. James, the son of Alphaeus, later in Mark, Mark will refer to him as James the less. Literally, the word in Greek for less is mikros, where we get micro from. So he's James the micro, James the tiny guy. We don't know what this refers to, either maybe his size, maybe he's shorter, or maybe it's his lack of notoriety. Maybe he's James who is known less than the other James who's known more. And that's all that we know about this guy. Thaddeus, also named Judas. He's the next individual on this list. His name is Judas, son of James. And he has two nicknames that are given to him. Thaddeus is one of them. And it can mean something that's equivalent to mama's boy, And then Levius is another nickname that he's given, which can mean something like gentle child or uh, child of the heart. seems to be a sensitive individual. Probably goes by Thaddeus here because once Judas betrayed Jesus, he probably doesn't want to be known as Judas anymore, so he goes by Thaddeus here. Next, we have Simon the Zealot. His nickname is the Zealot because he is a part of that group of zealots. He hates the Romans, probably wouldn't have liked Matthew either. And yet Jesus calls him... And last, we have Judas, Iscariot from Judea. He is the betrayer. I don't know about you, but whenever I read this list and I get to Judas who betrayed him, verse 19, I just want to step in and say, no. Jesus, you're picking the wrong guy, not him. Don't pick him. We've read the end of the story But if I did that, if I was able to jump into the story and say, no, 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 Jesus, don't pick him. Jesus would say to me, Patrick, you are not setting your mind on God's plans, but on your plans. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus came to die. And it was prophesied that this man would be the betrayer. He came to die and he needed this man. And so already we have hints of the gospel in this list. But look at this crazy list. There is a very quick overview of these 12 disciples. Look at this crazy list. Look at these people. Look at these crazy individuals. Jesus clearly never took a leadership training class. No seminar in how to pick good leaders because these people are crazy. Four fishermen, one tax collector, one zealot, and then six other people we don't really know much about. We know next to nothing about half of them And that's so encouraging to me because it reminds me in the obscurity of our discipleship, don't ever judge your worth or your value based on how famous or how known you are. God uses these men to literally change the world. And we know next to nothing about half of them. No backup plan, no backup crew. These guys are it. Our Lord uses ordinary, weak, failing, ignorant saints guess why? Uh, Because that's the only kind of saints that there are. So welcome to the group. Welcome to the club. We are all a bunch of losers in need of grace. That's who we are. We look at this list and we laugh, and this list is looking at us down from heaven and laughing at us, laughing at them. We're not any better. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Paul tells us, consider your calling. Not many of you are strong. Not many of you are famous or or wealthy. You don't have it all together. And that's exactly who Jesus calls. So welcome to the group. Therefore, because Jesus calls the riffraff, we are not the ultimate explanation for the explosion of the gospel. These men aren't the ultimate explanation for the explosion of the gospel. They're available, they're empowered And the gospel goes into the whole world because of the word doing the work through fallible, failing, messed up people. If we're going to understand how to follow Jesus the way he calls us to, we need to understand his authority in our lives. We need to understand the community of discipleship that we have with one another. Thirdly, we need to understand our obscurity. We need to glory in our weaknesses. We are nothing and we just love grace because grace is what supports us. Grace is what empowers us. We're nobodies. May we never have any sense of inflated self-importance that somehow we're somebodies. We're nobodies, just always pointing to somebody. And that somebody is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Number four, if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to understand the transformation of discipleship. We need to understand the transformation of discipleship. The whole goal of discipleship is for Jesus to take us from point A to point B, to transform us. And I love this list. I think it's so sweet. I've said it multiple times. It's a very informal list, a lot of nicknames. And I think Mark's doing that for a reason. He wants us to see the transformation that the gospel brings. He includes the failings of some of these individuals. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Peter is on this list to remind us of how much of a mess you can make of your devotion to Jesus and still be a rock in his service. Sons of thunder. They wanted to kill anyone opposed to them, but because of the gospel, James would be killed by those who opposed him, willing to lose his life to share Jesus, and John would become the disciple of love and not of hate. The skeptical The prejudice, the doubting, the pessimistic, the nobodies, the mama's boys, the zealous murderers at heart, all transformed by the gospel. Transformation should take place as you follow the Lord. But Judas is on this list to remind us of how close somebody can be to Jesus and still be lost. Being close to Jesus does not equal salvation. That's what we said last week. You can be a fan of Jesus, but not be a follower Judas was a fan until he wasn't, and then wanted Jesus dead, but he was never a follower. But there is such hope on this list. Who knows all of the reasons these men came to Jesus, but ultimately the gospel gripped their hearts. Jesus became their greatest treasure, and they followed him to their death. The gospel transforms, discipleship transforms. And fifthly and finally, if we're going to follow Jesus the way that we should, the way that he demands, the way that he deserves, we must understand the legacy of discipleship, the legacy of discipleship. We've seen the authority of Jesus, the community of discipleship, the obscurity of discipleship, the transformation of discipleship, and finally, the legacy. The way that it goes for Jesus, he will be betrayed, murdered on a cross, The way that it will go for him is the way that it will go for all of his followers. All of these men other than Judas. Persecution, suffering, martyrdom. And that legacy continues to this day. The servant is not greater than his master, Jesus said. If they treated me so badly, they're going to treat you badly. And in doing so, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, we will fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus. His afflictions were not lacking in any salvific way. His atonement is perfect. But they wanted to do more harm to him. They wished that they could have done more to him. They hate him so much that once he's dead, they wish they could raise him from the dead, kill him all over again. Satan hates Jesus. And if he can't get at Jesus, he's going to get at his followers. And that means you and me. Suffering's coming, persecution's coming. The church needs to be prepared for it, ready for it, and that's part of the legacy of discipleship. Just think about these 12 individuals, just minus Judas. We know how Judas ended his life. According to tradition handed down from the early church, the same fate of martyrdom fell all of the disciples except John, who, I mean, they tried to kill him, right? Like we always say John got out, No, he he didn't get out scot-free here, right? They they tried to kill him. They tried to poison him. And then they tried to boil him in oil. And then they realized we can't kill this man because he's a man of God. So let's just exile him to Patmos. So I still say he had a rough ending to his life. Peter was crucified upside down at his own request, according to Eusebius. Before he was crucified, he was forced to watch his wife be crucified And as he watched her being led to her death, Peter called to her by name and said, remember the Lord. Peter was taken away and crucified upside down. Andrew, his brother, reportedly was also crucified. He was tied to the cross instead of being nailed to the cross so that his suffering would be prolonged. James, the brother of John, is the only apostle whose death is recorded in Scripture. He was executed by Herod Agrippa. Philip was said to have been stoned to death in Asia Minor, but not before multitudes came to faith in Christ through his preaching. Traditions vary according to how Philip's close companion, Nathaniel, who's Bartholomew in this list, died. Some say that he was bound hand and foot and thrown into the sea. Others say he was crucified. Matthew might have been burned at the stake Thomas likely reached India, where some traditions say he was killed with a spear. According to the apocryphal martyrdom of James, James the son of Alphaeus was stoned to death by the Jews for preaching Christ. Simon the Zealot, according to some traditions, preached the gospel in Egypt, North Africa, and Persia, where he was martyred by being sawn in half like Isaiah, alive. Other traditions say that he was eventually crucified by the Romans. Thaddeus, the mama's boy, was a preacher of the gospel in modern-day Turkey. He was beaten to death with clubs. Why would anyone do this? That's a terrible way to end your life. All of these men follow Jesus. They get no riches. They get no land. They get no fame. They get no property. They get no power. They get no influence. And they all die terrible deaths. Why would anyone do this? It's because the legacy of discipleship is that Jesus is worth it. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Jesus is worth it. And if following him means that I have to lose my life in this life in a really painful way, so be it. Because once I die, I get more of him. Jesus is worthy to receive the reward of his sufferings. And so these men said, even if it means my death, I will gladly die because he is worth it. So I wonder for you, whether it's recognizing Jesus' authority in your life. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you claim to be a follower of Christ, he has all authority. Where in your life are you struggling to bow the knee to his authority? Maybe it's the community of discipleship. Maybe you have found yourself living in a way that would contradict what Hebrews tells us. Don't neglect, don't forsake the gathering together of the body. Maybe it's the obscurity of discipleship. Maybe you say, I don't want to be obscure. I want to be known. I want to be famous. I don't like just being a follower of Jesus. I need more. Maybe it's the transformation. Maybe you want to follow Jesus, but stay the way that you are. That doesn't work. And in Mark chapter 4, we're going to see, Jesus is going to tell us that doesn't work. Or maybe it's the legacy of discipleship. Not only suffering that we might have to go through as followers of Jesus, we will go through, right? The Bible promises that. In this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus promises it. Uh, Paul tells Timothy that um, if anyone desires to follow, uh, to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. It's coming. It's going to happen. But more so, we stand in their heritage, these 11 disciples, we stand in their heritage as they pointed people to Jesus no matter what the cost because Jesus was better than anything this world has to offer. That's the legacy of their discipleship. Yes, their death is crazy to look at and to think about, but that's not the legacy they want us to stare at. They want us to stare at the legacy of passing on the treasure of Christ. And he is better by far than anything this world has to offer. If you believe that, if you've received that reality, and you treasure Christ, and you follow him with a love for him that's greater than any love in this world, yes, there will be competing affections. Yes, it's not perfection, it's progression. But do you love him? He says to all of you this morning, come, follow me. Will you leave everything behind like these disciples? Because you would say, no matter what I'm leaving in the rearview mirror, what I have in front of me in Jesus Christ is better by far. Father, we thank you so much for this list. We thank you for these disciples that live out a legacy of pursuing you, sometimes with a skepticism, sometimes doubting, sometimes pessimistically. Sometimes just straight up anger and sin, betrayal, denying you. They are not perfect by any means and neither are we. We can say with Paul, we are the chief of sinners. We can say with these disciples, we're messed up. We're just a group of nobodies trying to tell everybody around us about somebody who is way better than anything we could possibly imagine, our heart's greatest delight, our treasure, our Savior, our Lord. God, I can't wait to meet these individuals in heaven one day, to meet these 11 apostles who have pointed so many to you and have pointed even us today to you. But even as I think about meeting them in heaven can't wait to meet you, the savior to whom they pointed constantly. That's what they would say. It's so good to see you. You finished the race, but come see and savor Jesus. Until you come back, Jesus, make us faithful. Even through these elements, as we remember the gospel, we rehearse the gospel with one another, we preach the gospel through these symbols, Make us faithful. Give us grace that we would receive empowerment to live out this legacy of discipleship with all who are around us. We pray in your name for your glory. Amen.